week's show but there will be on the next show and every other normal show on the normal Thursdays that we put them out. Uh, we have quite a few months to, to go back and we're not, I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything uh, so we've just kind of scanned through our notes over the last few months of things that have happened and we're going to try and bring you the highlight. I'm going to kick off uh, with something which I actually didn't have written down but it's just literally right now pip, um, popped up on my Facebook feed which is talking about uh, links and the reintroduction of links into the UK. Um, and if you didn't, you haven't heard it already. We did a very, very extensive podcast with the main man behind the Links Trust more than a year ago now. Darryl. Yeah, it was well over a year ago. Now. Um, a lot of people have listened to that. So if you are interested in Links and you haven't listened to that, I urge you to go back and find it. Um, but I just want to read out one thing here from Steve Piper. I've, I haven't heard of Steve Piper before, but he's involved with Links uh, Links Trust somehow. And he says, it doesn't matter that sheep are slower than deer or an easy meal. In every real world example, lynx show virtually, virtually no interest in killing sheep. Uh, I would say that that doesn't ring all that true to me. And I know for a 100% fact that uh, the lynx that have moved on through the forests in northern Germany have basically wiped out all of the mouflon, which is a wild type of sheep, if you don't know what that is. Um, so that doesn't seem true to we, me. We, we so. talked we talked about it on the Links podcast. I mean, it's two and a half hours long. We cover all these facts, and also facts that they left out Norway from their figures of being sheep being taken because the figures were too high, mm. um, and would mess up their uh, their figures for um, submitting and telling people. Uh, and also their their compensation scheme. I, mean, I read something the other day. You know the fact that they already have compensation a scheme. They've already built it into their their thing, which obviously they have to do. Uh, suggests that they're going to take sheep. I mean, if 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 you don't, you know, if you already build in a safe factor because your animal's going to take something, uh, it's going to happen. So you can't come out with statements going, oh well, you know, they probably won't take any sheep, but we'll make sure we've got a massive fund available. Uh, for when they do take the sheep. Uh, so we'll see what happens there, but they have now uh, submitted their application. I don't quite understand why suddenly it's a big news again. They've submitted the application to reintroduce them, but nothing has really changed since when we spoke, other than the fact that they've sub- finished the consultations and now they're submitting the application. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see cool. if it gets signed off. Um, you wanted to kick off first, Darrell? Yeah, well, this is very recent news, actually. This has only happened in the last few days. The announcement of Scott Rail uh, banning people taking firearms onto the train. Uh, this will obviously affect many passengers that travel up north, especially for the 12th of August, take the, the train journey. Big time. Um, and so now you're going to have to use alternative methods. Or a different service, I suppose. But up here, what, there is Virgin. Virgin? Virgin, I think, mm. is the only option. Uh, so they did this because a passenger left a gun on the train. I don't think, from the reading I've done, I don't think anything happened to the gun. It probably got handed in, um, and I imagine the person that left it probably, probably got into some serious trouble or lost their very, license. Yeah, I don't know. very serious trouble. Uh, so you know that was dealt with. It's if you think about it, it's actually a ridiculous thing because so. 
I imagine there's more than one instance of someone leaving a firearm over the years on the train. But you think about how how many has it actually caused a problem other than having to hand it into the police? Uh, it seems like a major overreaction. Uh, and I was telling, I was speaking to Byron earlier. What about banning alcohol on the trains? Surely alcohol and causes a lot more problems than people um, taking a gun, taking onto, a gun a onto a train. I bet you there's more violent assaults, there is more verbal assaults and everything general like that. Disruption. General disruption on the trains because of alcohol and they haven't banned that. That's because they would lose all their late night punters. Yeah, they would. Yeah, over, a complete overreaction in, in my view. Um, but anyway, that's what it is. So if you didn't know that, yeah. then now you do. Yeah, don't travel ScotRail. Um, I'm going to go from ScotRail UK to a park in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is the um, Okapi, I think that's how you pronounce it, the Okapi Reserve, uh, where five rangers were uh, killed just a matter of weeks ago. This is very close to the Virunga National Park, which was the subject of a very, very good documentary on Netflix about the mountain gorillas there. Um, These guys were there just trying to be the barrier between really bad guys and the animals that are there not just not just gorillas the they have um well a, a good but rapidly declining population of of forest elephants and also uh, the namesake of the reserve uh, okapi which is um i think it's an antelope i really should have looked that up before but it's that really bizarre looking antelope that has kind of zebra stripes down its back legs but the front half of it is a it's sort of a normal tawny kind of color if you don't know about those forest elephants look them up they're absolutely amazing i'm sure the bbc did something about them and the tracks they have through the jungles absolutely astounding and then they all meet up in these little oases in the middle of the jungle but i'm sure i'm sure it was on planet earth i'm not sure if if you know where where to find it email us uh, so we can share the link but yeah very sad uh, and although this story has just come out this is a story which is actually repeated every couple of months if probably not every month but we just don't hear about it um, rangers on the front line their job is to protect wildlife from poaching and also protect areas from illegal um, felling of trees and mining which and is a big problem big big problem and they're being killed all the time and we barely ever hear about it and you know these are the guys. These are the guys on the front line who are really, well, I mean, they're paying the ultimate price, aren't they, yeah. to protect uh, wildlife, not just for us but for future generations. So, I think it's always important to, for us to be aware of it. And it begs the question: uh, Should international communities be doing more? Yep, they should. Uh, what's your next thing? You've got uh, well, I'll, I've got another one uh, in Africa. Um, which is there was there's been a recent scientific report out um, called the well actually sorry it's it, there's an article called the cattle barons in Kenya and it is based on a recent scientific report it was originally published by the conservation imperative and they start off by talking about the the loss that, of wildlife in Kenya that a lot of us will be well aware of now it's quoted a lot 68% loss since the 1970s when they banned hunting um, but probably what is less well known is that one of the major causes of loss of wildlife, especially in recent decades, has been the increase in cattle ranching. And that's why this this particular article is called The Cattle Barons of Kenya. <clears throat> and basically, this 
increase in cattle populations continually encroaching on the wild areas is not only destroying the habitat that they like to live in, uh, but the people who are owning these um, herds of cattle are killing the wildlife because they are direct competition for food. Uh, it's it's a really it's it's a hard one, and it's clearly something that the international community does not want to tackle, because there you have native people in their native lands, basically using it as they please, but it is most definitely and has been proven now to the detriment of that landscape and the w other wild animals that, well, I was going to say live there, used to live there. Uh, this is the same place that um, Kuki Gullman, the, the very well-known uh, conservationist who wrote I Dreamed of Africa, was shot by cattle ranchers uh, only six months ago. She actually survived. She was shot in the stomach. And that was as a result of basically them wanting to take over land that she had uh, and was was doing her best to conserve the wild habitat and, and wild animals that, that lived on it. She was actually investigating an area of the farm which had recently been burnt down uh, in protest for them not being allowed to graze their cattle across it. So it's a serious problem, uh, not just in Kenya, but across all of Africa and many other parts of the world is this continual encroachment whether it be for, for food or palm oil or anything like that, which is fueled by our demand. Yep. Well, talk, talking about food, I can move on to my next thing, which is a recent research from the University of Aberdeen, which is uh, fairly local to us, uh, suggests that more than half of the UK's food now comes from overseas. That's not actually a huge surprise. Uh, but what it's saying is that now it means that 64% of related greenhouse gases for our food is actually all being produced abroad. So, so if you think about our CO2 emission targets and stuff like that, it's very easy to displace them because you just shove it abroad. So it's someone else's problem. It's someone else's problem. But the other problem is, is that all of these things are actually being shoved into uh, kind of poorer regions on the planet, South America, um, Asia, uh, places like that, but the the other problem we have here, um, sorry, I'm just trying to, I had a, another figure here scrolling through my article, um, but, but the point is, is that we are reliant on the other part of the world right now to feed ourselves, and it's only going to get worse, I think, during World War II, I'm not saying anything major like that's going to happen again, but we proved that relying on other parts of the world for your food is a big mistake. It's dangerous. Dig for uh, victory. That was yeah, it, exactly. It? We had to, everyone had a garden yeah. to feed themselves. My dad would be all right during the summer because <laughs> he has an amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. vegetable patch. <laughs> yeah, he would be. Um, but, yeah, it really makes you think about where our, our food, food comes security, from. food security, Yeah, it? food security. But uh, another thing, I mean, I'm not saying everyone's to blame. Uh, the other, only the other day we went and bought a punnet of um, strawberries from I think it was Tesco and we had to nip in there and it was for a pavlova which was delicious it was I actually consumed some of that pavlova yeah so we went in there grabbed a punnet didn't even think about it because we were just nipping in and when we got home they were from Portugal the strawberries and then you think how crazy that is when we have probably we live in probably the largest strawberry growing part of the United Kingdom uh, which is surrounded by Perth, Angus and Aberdeen if you drive all those places it's just polytunnels 
all the way around. I mean, we're we're, uh, we're about yet, two miles away from Charlton Farm, which is uh, uh, notorious in this area for for um, strawberries. Yeah, and soft fruits. Yeah, uh, and I, I and don't, yeah, a local supermarket is bringing stuff in from another part of the world. The thing is, I don't know the full story. I don't know who's to blame here. Is the supermarket unable to get the strawberries because they're all being exported down south, or they're being exported to other parts of the world? Who knows? Or is it just a cheaper option? to get them from another part of the world. Yeah. Well, I can actually tie in very nicely to that story uh, with something which I was going to mention later. But back in Easter, um, a lot of supermarkets have come under quite heavy criticism for not stocking enough Scottish lamb. The stocks of Scottish lamb across most of the major supermarkets was very limited, and the labelling of lamb from other parts of the world was very, very poor, a lot of it coming from Australia and New Zealand, at a time of year where lamb is in season for us. It's crazy, So why it? wouldn't supermarkets be adjusting their supply chain so that you had it weighted to local produce? And I'm guessing probably some of it's to do with money and margin. I don't yeah. know, that's a guess. But we should be thinking about that because surely it's better for us to be eating for the environment, eating local lamb, than sending in lamb all the way over from yeah, New Zealand. If you, I mean, if you really are concerned about the environment, like it's insane to eat something that comes from the other part of the globe, which has to come by ship or plane, probably ship, ship because it would think. be too expensive to fly a lamb by a plane. <laughs> um, and I think how much fuel is used bring that lamb across it's insane it's actually insane that you can get it as cheap as you can consumer pressure could change that it could if you just if the supermarkets found that their shelves remained full of new zealand lamb and australian lamb and lamb from other parts of the world during the part of the season where Mm -hmm. we readily have lamb available from local produce they would stop bringing it in at that time of year. They simply would. I think, was it Morrison's announced last week or something that they're going full British? Everything is going to be stocked from the UK. Um, The thing is, is at certain parts of the year, we have stuff that's out of season and everybody likes an avocado all year round. And you can't, you know, they don't even grow them in this country, but uh, we have seasons here with sweet potatoes and stuff like that where they get smaller and bigger in the shop and, and you have to go further afield in other parts of the globe to bring them in. Um, so obviously everybody needs to be able to get stuff out of season. We live in the Well, modern... I, I would argue that maybe we should be no, changing. No, I'm saying that. So, you know, People do you feel to... they need. Yeah, yeah, they feel they need to do have stuff Do you actually out of have to have something yeah. that's out of season? Um, or, I mean, we can grow a large amount of stuff in the UK. Yeah, we can. Uh, this actually, um, there was a, an article recently by uh, the responsive management um I can't remember exactly what they're called. This responsive management something in the U.S. and they monitor trends of hunters and have done for for decades, for well, more than thirty years. And in their most recent survey of hunters, meat is now the biggest reason for people going hunting. Now that has shifted because thirty years ago it was actually trophies, mm. and now it is meat. And they said, uh, and this ties in perfectly with what we've just been saying, is they said the main reason for this is what they call the locavore movement, which is people wanting to source what they eat locally. Mm. And you know that you've done that if you've hunted it yourself. Locavore. It's it's a new one for me, but uh, it's I, I googled it and it seems to have been used quite a bit. Well, if it's on Google, then it's real. Uh, I'm going to move on to something a bit more closer to home again. Um 
this this oh, this story is particular to the Scottish Highlands, but I think there's effects down in England, Lake District probably in particular, um, about the hordes of tourists who descend on these areas and basically destroy them. Um, we have first-hand experience of this. Uh, you just need to go to Glencoe, Isle of Skye. Um, I'm trying to think of a few other places. Well, I think, that yeah, well, I mean, the, the classic places in the Isle of Skye is the Fairy Glen. Yeah, Glen Etive, Fairy Glen. Yeah, Glen Etive, another great example. All these places. Um, and over the last 10 years, a large amount of them have been made famous due to movies. Um, hundreds of movies have been filmed. Uh, over the last Especially few up in years, Sky. you know, Glen Etive, James Bond, Glen Coe's used in every bloody shot you can think of. Um, Sky's used in everything. BFG, Transformers, uh, oh, the, the list goes on and on and on. Alien, uh, well, the, um, which Alien was it? Yeah, the, most the Prometheus, one, Prometheus, that, that yeah. was filmed. I mean, there is a huge list of, um, so anyway, it's getting more popular. Um, and... There is thousands of tourists. If you haven't been to the west coast of Scotland in summer, don't go. Um, no, it is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It is, it is, Apart it from it the midges. Beautiful. The midges will eat you alive. Uh, but for a local person living there, it is hell. And I'm not even joking. We've got lots of friends on the west coast that live actually in the Fairy Glen. And it is hell. There is hundreds of tourists, hundreds of tour buses, um, and... I don't know where the problem lies. I think the problem lies with I think local it, uh, council and government because mm. they are still actively encouraging people to go to these places with Visit Scotland. But they have no infrastructure in place whatsoever for the amount of people. They have no car parking. They have not enough facilities for people to, go to put the your toilet, rubbish. Nowhere to put your rubbish. Uh, the roads are single-track roads. And the tour operators are inconsiderate. Yeah. They're parking in people's driveways, blocking their homes, and... It's absolutely insane, um, and this article that's come out is uh, it, it's along the same lines, and it's talking about uh, Glencoe um, and how we've got new routes, um, the 500, the what do you call it? There's there's loads of new routes uh, opening up that are being made more. Uh, you see it on Facebook as well. It's like top 10 places to go. The Guardian comes out with something. It always comes out with something, and every time I see one of these articles, I just I'm like. Why? Why would you do this? It's like top ten most secluded beaches in Scotland, and you're not like, much well, longer. well, not anymore. Cheers for that. And it's like ten best bothies to go to in Scotland. Well, cheers for that. Now you're going to have a bunch of Neds camping in it. And the thing is, is like, you may think I'm a little bit extreme saying that, but I am a hundred percent true. You put something on Facebook, next thing you know, you've got a bunch of Neds from Glasgow coming up, destroying the place. Why do you think they've had to put a camping ban on? Uh, around Loch Lomond around Loch Lomond for exactly that reason and it hasn't I, I should just say that Ned's uh, <laughs> they're not just uh, confined to Glasgow <laughs> no they've got chows down in England <laughs> any person that but basically I'm, I'm tarring anyone stereotyping anyway, anyone that wants to come into the countryside or any part of the world and then they just leave their trash behind yes. and destroy it that person that person it's that person I'm talking about so they don't actually have to be a Ned there might be some very nice Neds out there or Chavs I don't know um, and uh, but I mean yeah Daryl's absolutely right and the, the frustrating thing is that other countries around the world do an incredibly good job of New Zealand is tourists. a prime example um, they, it's a resource it's a resource for mm. a country it, it brings money into the country but we are harnessing it terribly and in fact not just are we harnessing it badly it's actually becoming detrimental not only to the local people who live in those areas but 
to that area itself and the environment and the wildlife that's there. They, just, it, they need to spend it, some money. You, you can argue all day long that, oh, well, you know, they're bringing money into the area. You just have to take Sky as another example. We've spent a lot of time there and we know a lot of the locals. And you go, oh, well, you know, there's 10,000 tourists a day coming in. This is just an example. Well, hang on. If you actually look at it, so these 10,000 tourists, 6,000 of them are being bussed in. The bus comes from Glasgow. It drives onto Sky. It see, sees all of the, the big name things, Kilt Rock and um, Fairy Pools. Fairy Pools, all these things. They all have a packed lunch with them, or some of them might go to the shop. The tour bus pays nothing to go to Sky. It takes everything at once, and then it pulls these people away because they don't stay there, and then they leave the island for the day. Mm. And then you've got a tour bus of 55, 60 people. How much money have they actually spent? I'll tell you who's made the money, the tour operator. The tour operator. And the tour bu- the operator is based not in... in Edinburgh or Glasgow, yeah, one of the cities. Not based in Sky. Um, you know, obviously there's going to be a proportion of the tourists that are staying on Sky. But, I mean, there's a lot of people in camper vans. You see that a lot. They're not staying in local hotels. They might be going to the local co-op and stuff like that, but they're not harnessing. That's the point. It's not being harnessed. There's, you know, the car parks aren't being, you know, you don't pay for parking at the ferry pools and yeah. stuff like that. Why are they not funding that? Well, they need to because they need to keep the upkeep. It's a lot of footfall on those areas. But, but they shouldn't punish the locals I was for it. just yeah. about to say, and it's a conversation we have a lot. For example, it really frustrates me that uh, on the side of Loch Ness, Urquhart Castle, we used to live there. It's probably one of the first castles I remember as a kid. Essentially, we're local, and I have to pay to go and look at that. And I find that quite frustrating. I think that we need to harness it sensibly. We should be able. Uh, we should make sure that local people from the area can embrace that local culture and history without feeling like they can't go there because it costs a lot of money. And then you can easily make that up by foreign tourists. And I'm not talking about charging them so much that they don't want to come. You need to be sensible about it. But I don't feel that there's any need for something like that to charge local people to well, go to. Well, the thing it. is they'd make the money back because we've got lots of local castles around us. I do not take anyone that comes here to the castles because they cost too much money. But if I got in for free, yeah. I would then take people to the no castles. No problem. And that's your money covered there. And then I might buy a coffee at the coffee shop if, if there is one. But I'm not spending 12 quid to get into Edsel Castle, which is a bunch of ruins. Mm. I mean, it is. It's just... It's, it's right on our doorstep. Yeah, right We've on been our doorstep. there plenty of times, but... Um, you know, I've flown the drone yeah, over it. And, uh, if you live in Edsel... Well, when we went to Edsel School, we didn't have to pay, but maybe you live too far away now, Joel. No, you don't, You have to pay. There's oh, a they sign. changed it Yeah, now. there's a sign. I uh, see. So you used to. See, they it's used to do that. part of historic Scotland, so now you can pay like £80 or £90 for the entire year and get into them all. Uh, uh, but they on, used to have a local entry where you didn't pay if you were local when yeah, I was a well, kid. Yeah, the thing is, is that we're talking about not affecting locals. I don't know if it's still the case now that this is going back like probably ten years. Uh, the Lake District has had the tourist problem for years and years, the honey pot pot effect, and they in Penrith the locals had their own parking discs that they were allowed thirty I minutes at a that, time. Yeah. Uh, because everywhere you had to pay in Penrith because there was that many people. And that's a prime example of a local um, council not screwing over locals. Yeah, but tackling a problem. But tackling a problem, yeah. Yeah, I remember because I used to have a local disc. I had a disc as well, yeah. Uh, Okay, next subject. Now, this is something that's uh, a little bit more lighthearted. In Sri Lanka recently, some of you might have seen this, there was an elephant found washed out to sea. 
Now, oh, it's yeah. not uncommon for elephants and other animals to cross large bodies of water, but I think this one was just a little bit far from land. It must have got pulled out with a current. And by the look of the video, I think it probably was struggling a bit. It's trunk coming up every now and then to try and get some air. Probably getting uh, a bit tired. Yeah, so anyway, long story short, um, a number of boats went there and they managed to save it. They managed to get it back to shore. But I was feeling quite sorry for the poor elephant. It looked pretty, as you can imagine, pretty stressed out as they were trying to help it. But mm. it survived. Yeah, as long as it lived. Um, talking about animals and cool things, uh, one of the most amazing pictures I think I've seen this year in 2017 was um, a collection of pictures taken by a wildlife photographer called Franco Benfi. And it was, um, he, he, in recent years, he's been spending a lot of time following a group of sperm rail, whales around the world. And he managed to catch them having this motionless vertical nap. They were sleeping. Now, sperm whales only sleep for 7% of their entire life. And it is the most incredible thing. You look at the pictures and it just doesn't even look real. They were, they didn't, it didn't seem to matter whether they were facing down or up, but they were completely vertical all kind of in this kind of rough, crude circle, completely still. You know, Amazing. I, I was having a thought about this the other day, and I need to dig out the pictures. When I was in Mozambique, I was with my uncle, I saw two whales with their fins out completely vertically, just their fins out the water, not, like the not tail moving, fin. tail fin, completely motionless, and we didn't know what it was. I wonder if there's And I've got a picture of it, but it was really early in the morning because we were tuna fishing at the time. And yeah, they were completely mo motionless for about 20 minutes, and then they moved. That, that's what so they said, 20 that, minutes at a time. So that's what, I think that's so what I saw. So you've seen it. I've that's seen rare. It, but it was early morning, and I was like 14 years old, but I have a picture of it. I have a picture of its fin. That's so I need to find it. You got another thing, Daryl? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, okay. I've got a couple. Um, we've talked about uh, Lyme's disease. Quite, well, we mention it from time to time. Really um, serious, serious problem. And there's a recent paper out that's actually uh, linked Lyme's disease to dementia. Uh, and it's basically it attacking the nerve system. And I had n I've never heard that mentioned before. So I thought that that was, that was worth uh, bringing up. And there was... Oh, yes, and also on Lyme's disease, another paper out recently uh, in the States has linked the increase in, in Lyme's disease to the reduction in the red fox population in certain areas uh, in America. Now, that is not reduction in red fox due to hunting pressure or predator control. That is actually due to coyotes. Wherever coyotes come in, they basically push them out or kill red foxes. But the reason for this is the change in their prey. Now, what they were saying in that article was that very often the white-tailed deer were blamed for the increased spread of ticks and then the associated Lyme disease. But what they were saying was that they could link it directly to the decline in the fox population and the rise in the white-footed mouse population. Because they were saying that that was, although it's obviously a much smaller animal than the, the deer, that that was a much better host for the tick. So that's an interesting one. I've never heard anything like that here. And we always assume that um, deer are the, the primary host, mm. although... I have to say, if you listen to any of the gamekeepers, they will also tell you that hair are a, a, a big consideration when you talk about host. Uh, one animal that I always see with thousands of ticks, but I'm not sure if it has anything to do with the numbers or whatsoever, because I'm not sure what hedgehog numbers are like, but they are always covered in hedgehogs. ticks and fleas. Mm. Um, 
I don't think there's a single hedgehog that I've ever seen that hasn't been covered in them. And we, we see a lot of hedgehogs because we have a spaniel that specialises in fetching hedgehogs. In fact, he found one the other day when I was with him. He picks them up in his mouth and he carries them. We do not know how he does it. Uh, but it's uh, quite hilarious. But he doesn't do anything with it. All he, he incredibly soft mouths. He picks it up, puts it at your feet. Puts it at your feet, and we then tell that's him it. to disappear. And then the hedgehog goes on about yeah. the day. Uh, in Ireland, for our Irish listeners, and we know that we have a few because we met some at a game fair recently. Yeah, we did. Um, so shout out to you guys. There was a meeting in Ireland for the. Uh, Irish Curlew Task Force, which had more than a hundred scientists from across the UK and Ireland to discuss, quite obviously, curlew. There is only, uh, it's estimated to be 130 breeding pairs in the whole of Ireland, and they reckon that they could be extinct in hmm. in that country in the next 10 years. But what is interesting about that was that the conclusion, basically, was that they need to do better predator control. Yeah. That was the solution, was that they needed to harness um, you know, local shooting clubs, local hunters, and have some sort of formulated predator control plan yeah. for your rats, for your foxes, for anything that will attack them, especially um, during that vulnerable stage when they're nesting and when the chicks are on the ground. Um, so a great example of collaboration between... Good wildlife management. Yeah, Absolutely. Because uh, the bottom line is, as we've said it hundreds and hundreds of times, and you speak to keepers up and down the country, they could spend every single day trapping, shooting, doing whatever they need to do. They are not going to wipe out the predators. It's not going to happen. Uh, but it does help kind of yeah. redress a balance mm -hmm. if you want to look at it like from that point of view in terms of management. We need to decide what we want our landscape to look like. In this case, this task force is being put together because they realize that there's got a big problem with the decline in curlew numbers. They want their landscape to have more curlew in it. So what do you do to address that? You've got to tackle the predators. Yeah. Um, last two things, uh, for more for information than anything else. In March this year, 2017, there was a breach of a fish farm where 20,000 salmon ended up in the sea. Uh, that was near the Isle of Mull. We t we've talked about fish farms from time to time. We've made a film uh, for Salmon and Trout Conservation Scotland looking at the effect of sea ice from fish farms on wild fish populations and in particular sea trout in the Loch Marie area. Go and check that out on YouTube or Vimeo. Um, it's a, we interviewed some really interesting people and the effect has been quite marked, uh, basically destroying what was a global destination for uh, sea trout fishing. Um, it was famous. Uh, famous in its day, um, as, along with the Loch Marie Hotel, which had... I think a minimum of 10 boats out almost every day during the season and now barely has one out a week. Uh, so 20,000 fish have escaped from this fish farm. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with it? Of course, the, the main concern normally is will they end up breeding with uh, fish in local rivers and diluting the, the, the native strain, the genetic strain of that river? Because there is a very specific genetic strain for each river up and down the, the coasts of uh, the British Isles. And the very last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, I'm not really going to talk about it, but if you haven't heard about coral bleaching, go and Google it and look at some photographs and read a few things about it. Because I watched a program on it recently and I didn't really know that it was it was going on. And it's 
quite staggering how fast this has happened, where essentially these massive coral reefs, instead of having these amazing, vibrant colors that we're all so used to looking at in video and film, they're just ghost forests. I'll I'll direct you to a film that I watched uh, called The Last Reef. It's a 40-minute documentary. It's absolutely fascinating. Amazing cinematography underwater, but it's fascinating. It talks all about the warming of our waters and how it's destroying the the coral reefs but it's not all I know it's not all doom and, doom and gloom it also shows you how it, wildlife is counteracting itself in a way it's it's trying to fix the balance but it, I don't think it's doing fast enough yeah that's yeah um so the last reef it's Go. something happening under our seas that a lot of people probably won't be aware of so yeah. just for your own knowledge go and check it out um i've got uh, Two more things. Well, one thing was just something I heard on the radio uh, talking about lynx. And there was uh, a wildlife sanctuary trust down in England. It was on Radio 4, I think it was, in the morning. And they basically posed the question to them, you know, how far do you go with uh, with it? Do you stop at lynx? And no, they, for reintroduction. Yeah, reintroduction. And they were like, no, no, as far as we're concerned, we want bears and wolves uh, back in the, the Scottish Highlands. I was like, well, you're in Devon, so... You know why? You know why? Why do the Scots have yeah, to deal why with do the we bears have to and deal wolves? with the bears and wolves? Uh, but you know, th- th- their thinking wasn't really that rational. Uh, you know, there's, there's I a- think in a modern landscape, we have to be sensible about our approach, yeah. and uh, also keep in mind that although, as I've often said, and have actually just recently written in an article, one of the biggest issues we have is the increasing human population, we do have to remember that no long-term plan for wildlife management will work if it isn't, uh, if it doesn't work alongside the populations that live there. It just won't work. And history has proven that. Yeah. Uh, And in other news across the pond to our American listeners, uh, in Montana, 300,000 mink have uh, just been released from their cages and it was thought it was animal rights activists and they think that because it has numerous cases over the last five years in one case it was a two-year spree up and down the country of someone driving basically up the country and cutting holes in the cages Uh, what's interesting is nearly all 300,000 have died in the wild Uh, I haven't managed to find out why they've died but the point is is they've released them and the end result is that they've died and now they're completely useless to anyone. It is for fur farming. That's the purpose of them. Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting one, the fur farming. I don't know how comfortable I feel about that. I don't really know much about it, although we did actually see some fur farms in Norway, in Norway yeah. which I didn't know went on there. They stink. They do really stink. <laughs> um, it's something we maybe need to look into a little bit more, but it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem like a really great use of animal resource as a fur farm. No, it. it uh... I think utilizing fur off the back of um, other activities, such as a, a good example of people overreacting. Black bears in America are a huntable species. Legitimately, they have quotas. They hunt them. It's absolutely fair game. And the byproduct of that, apart from the fantastic meat, although I have to say I've never eaten it, but from uh, people I've heard from, apparently it tastes great, is the fur. And people use the fur. Now that is brilliant use of the resource. Not letting anything to waste is to use that fur. However, I, I don't know if I... Yeah, I, it doesn't sit comfortably with me breeding animals solely for their fur, which obviously 
mink is. I don't know really where. I, you never see anybody wearing fur anymore. I'd love to know where it's going. Well, you can't you can't bring it into this country. Yeah, so it's I banned don't here. You can only buy like the stuff from the vintage shops. Yeah, the old stuff. Um, so I don't know, but the thing is, is the fake stuff is looks identical now to the real stuff. So why would you want to do? But it? on the other hand, you could argue that I don't know what the fake stuff is made from. I bet it's probably made from oil. Oil. That's what I was just <laughs> going to say is that you could argue that the fake stuff could be more more, more damaging. Harmful, but yeah. but then again, there's an animal rights implication of fur farming. Well, animal welfare. Uh, welfare. Sorry. Rights, yeah. um, in fact, talking about animal rights, this is my last thing because I I was looking at things over the weekend. So I don't know if you remember back in 2015. That's correct. Yeah, 2000. Uh, no, it was just before 2015 because the case came into court in 2015. Um, so it would have been 2014. Um, you might remember a picture of a monkey taking a selfie. Yes, I do. Uh, and it went round the world. And after that, it was claimed that the, the photographer shouldn't hold the rights to the picture because the monkey took the picture. And I didn't know this, but since 2015 in America, um, it's actually, I think it's New York, um, the... Peter have had him in court since 2015 and almost broken him in terms of money uh, because they're claiming that he can't hold any rights for the picture. So it's Peter that's actually taking this to court. Um, But I think Peter are going to lose because it means that the US, because it's now in the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court will have to admit that monkeys have the same uh, Level level of intelligence and the same rights as humans. Um, but that, I mean, the implications of that are far, far-reaching. Yeah, we're talking about Planet of the Apes here. Yeah, we are. Um, and the photographer's argument is is that yes, the monkey took the picture, but he did. It wasn't an accident. This wasn't like oh, the monkey stole the camera. Yeah, so changed the shutter speed. He'd, he'd, actually, he'd actually been training the monkey to do this, like the, all the monkeys uh, to do I this. I didn't know this. Yeah, so he'd been there for weeks training them how to pick things up and. And so he had he had set the shutter speed, the aperture. He he'd done everything. He and he edited the picture. Mm. The monkey didn't edit the picture, and then the monkey didn't put it on the internet. Mm. Uh, and uh, I hope that when he wins, he breaks them. I hope so. But you know the knock-on effect from this. So I really wish I could uh, remember where the monkey was. But the locals now call the monkeys selfie monkeys that's what they're called and it's now a massive tourist attraction to go and uh, see the selfie monkeys see the selfie monkeys and give your phone or something and to they'll them press and they'll do the, do the thing amazing so there's so there's been a local spin-off but <laughs> the poor guy who organised it in the first place has had a hell of a couple of years well yeah he says that he's going to give up photography and everything after this because uh, Peter had him in court for this animal rights I'd love case. him to be able to take him for everything that they got left but Which I think is quite a lot. It's insane. I mean, you think about people donating money to Peter, and this is the kind of stuff that and they're taking. And this is what they're court. fighting. A friggin' monkey taking a picture. This is what they're fighting. And on that note, <laughs> that is your news yeah, for the last couple of months. Uh, you will be hearing, um, in less than seven days, you will be hearing our next podcast, which is coming from the CIC again, um, but a lot of them are, are new people, new topics, new conversations. And then two weeks later, you're going to be hearing from Chris, uh, Chris Conroy up in Loch Ness. Yep, and then we'll have various other guests um, in the upcoming months. Yes, we are all over the place, so we will be grabbing people 
from up and down the country, we'll possibly abroad. Hopefully something from actually in Africa. Yep. Uh, we still need to get a uh, gamekeeper or two on. Uh, especially it's for going to be quite difficult coming up soon because August the 12th is very soon. It is, but we could do something. We are going to be around uh, with lots of gamekeepers uh, before the 12th. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we could do a walk-around interview of them. Yeah, we can try. Talking about the season ahead and what they've got to look prospects. forward. Prospects. Yeah, prospects ahead. Uh, the challenges that they've had over the last year and uh, how the wildlife's doing because they'll have a good indication of not only grouse numbers, they would have seen the lapwings and, and various other animals and they'll be able to tell us how what it's looking like on the ground. Mm. Just uh, You've just prompted my memory. We were we spent quite a bit of time earlier on in the season driving around some of the local estates to film birds and waders and stuff. Uh, and talking about the curlew decline in Ireland, I saw more curlew this year than I probably have in my whole life put together. Uh, and that was all on local managed grouse moles. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It was just curlew, curlew, curlew in numbers that were just... Yeah, it's just breathtaking to see. It's such a great bird, and the sound they make is just amazing. If you go to um, any place with these waders early in the morning with the oyster catchers and the curlews and the lapwings and, and all that, the noise that they make, especially early in the morning and later in the evening, is absolutely insane. Mm, it is. It'll stay with you forever if you've not heard it before. Yeah. And with that, we have to leave you because uh, we need to pack our stuff. We're off to the West Coast. So, see you again in a few days' time. Bye.